Hey, it's Thomas Frank. I've just got a quick note for you before we get into the show. If you've been enjoying the Inforium or my videos over on YouTube, then you, my friend, should get Nebula. On Nebula, you get ad-free versions of both this podcast and my videos, along with exclusive stuff like extended versions of those videos. And it's not just our stuff that you're going to get. Dozens of other creators are on Nebula, including Ali Abdal, Wendover Productions, Braincraft, Tier Zoo, and lots more. Nebula gives us a chance to experiment, and since everything's ad-free, it's also the best way for you to get our content. Head over to theinforium.com slash nebula to sign up now. Hey, what's going on, everybody, and welcome to the College Info Geek Podcast. My name is Thomas Frank, and this is a show that helps you become a more effective student. And on today's episode, I am happy to welcome one of my good friends back on the show, because today I am talking with Jenny Blake, who is the author of a book called Pivot, The Only Move That Matters Is Your Next One. This book is all about making small career changes and uh, changes to your overall path in life. And I think it's relevant to basically anybody because a lot of us, even when we're in college, we go through certain periods in our life where we're doing one thing, we're putting a ton of work into one area, and then eventually we realize that that area is no longer our main calling or that it's not right for us anymore. And we start to think, well, what's next? You know, and we have people coming at us asking questions like, what are you going to do in five years? Where do you see yourself in the next 10 years? These kind of things. And I think these kind of questions are irrelevant. They're not all that great because they're too far forward in the future. But the the questions that are a little bit more immediate, like what are you going to do next? How are you going to do it? What is the methodology you are going to use to get from where you are right now, where you may not be satisfied to somewhere in the near future where you're going to be more satisfied, hopefully, or where you're going to learn something new at the very least. Those are the interesting questions. And that's what Jenny's book is all about. And you might be familiar with Jenny because, as I said, she has been on the show before. I talked to her back in episode 24 of this podcast, so really early on in the podcast's history. And that episode was actually a lot about the process of pivoting. Uh, We talked about her history from going to from college to a job at a startup to working at Google and then from going from Google to working for herself and becoming a full-time author and speaker. So definitely I think that episode is a good companion to this one and it's a good one to listen to if you're at any stage in your life whether it be, you know, in your career or as a student and you want to change up what you're doing. Now, this particular episode is one of those episodes that I I'll I'll label as a useful conversation because I purposely didn't want to get too much into her book. I didn't want to make it like a, you know, a crazy just promotional episode about her book. I think it's a great book and I'm going to be linking it up in the show notes because it's a great read and I think it's a very good companion to So Good They Can't Ignore You by Cal Newport if that's one you've, you've read. But this episode is just kind of a conversation between two friends that touches on a lot of important things. So we talk about how to build relationships with other people. We talk about uh, how you could maybe shake things up by moving to a new city for a month, which is something that Jenny did and which is something that actually influenced her career path and the work that she's doing. So I think you'll enjoy it. And if you do enjoy it and you happen to listen to the earlier interview I did with Jenny and you like that as well, definitely go pick up a copy of her book, which once again is called Pivot the only move that matters is your next one. I'm going to have it linked up in the show notes, which you can find by going over to CIGpodcast.com slash 131, and you'll find all sorts of extra useful links over there, travel links, resource links, all kinds of stuff. And lastly, you'll find links to rate and review the podcast on iTunes if you want to help support the show, because that is a great way to do it. So without further ado, let's get into this interview with Jenny. Jenny, welcome to the show. 
Thomas, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, once again, this is your second time on the show. And it's been a really long time. It's been like two years, hasn't it? Yes, and you've been so helpful to me with podcasting. So I have to thank you for being an inspiration and uh, leading the way. Yeah, it was fun to feature you in Pivot. I know. Okay, I got the book and I, I like, I'll admit it. I went to the index and I was like, where's my name? Of <laughs> <laughs> course. Isn't and it kind of wild? I think, let's say if it's sold, who knows, 2,000 copies and we're about a month out, like maybe 2,000 people know about you now and all your pilots. I know, right? kind of cool. Yeah. How many people do you think finished the book? I don't know. Because I'm, <laughs> like, I'm like halfway through. Yeah, there's a lot of people. And then for some, they're like... You know, I think books jump off the shelf at exactly the right time, whether that's right when you buy it or in two years or something. So Mm -hmm. I don't even know how many would have finished it by now. The fun the fun thing is, too, with my first book, there was no audiobook. Only I recorded the Life After College audiobook earlier this year. But with Pivot, people are coming up and they're saying, oh, you've been reading me to bed at night or, oh, I listen to you on my commutes. Or So that's been really fun to just have people interact with the work in such a different way. Yeah. How much feedback have you been getting for the audiobook versus the print book? About equal. It's been Are you surprising. serious? Yeah. And people are, one person oh, read the paper book and mm-hmm. is listening to the audio. And he said that it helps him reinforce the concepts. And I was adamant. What, what a lot of people don't know is that as an author, you have to audition to read your own book. It's not a guarantee. Really? And yeah, I was adamant that it be me. I could not imagine some random woman reading my book. That was just going to be unacceptable. But I did have to submit audio samples. and But it's been so rewarding on the other side to have people say, I, you know, it's really cool to have your voice reading your words. And I love that, too, when I listen to other authors' audiobooks. And yeah. I, it's cool that you're recording yours coming up, which is awesome. It'd be funny if it was just some, like, British gentleman. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maintaining a growth oh. mindset is critical to navigating a pivot successfully. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally. Um, totally. But yeah, the other but- weird thing I'll say, the other weird thing is there's absolutely no training. So when authors, when we do go into the studio, it's just like, okay, have fun. But I mean, really? I, kept, I kept asking the audio engineers, like, do you have any feedback from me? What can I do better? How do I do this? You know, how do I be really good at this? And they're just like, oh, you're doing fine. But it's really a shot in the dark as far as how to do it. And I think some authors like James Altucher will have fun. The, the farther out you are from the when the book itself was published, the more you can kind of riff mm-hmm. and be like, oh, man, in the time since I wrote that, let me tell you what happened. So <laughs> if you listen to definitely choose yourself on audio, you'll get to hear those nuggets that he just throws in ad lib. Just Is that fun. kind of a, that's a cool thing to do? Yes. I think people really enjoy it. And especially for yours when you do. Yeah, because it's kind of saying, even though I wrote this a year or two ago, here's what's true now. And by the way, and here's a fun aside. So I think it gives people a real inside track. That is validation that I needed to hear. So thank you. (laughs) Because I I only listen to fiction audiobooks for the most part. I think I listened to Seven Habits of Highly Successful People on audio once. But other, other than that, mainly fiction. So I've kind of been under this impression that even though with my podcast, I can riff all I want. When it comes to the audiobook, I need to sit down and read it word for word to provide a consistent product. But I don't, I don't speak the way that I write, you know? And And when I narrate blog articles for the podcast, I'll throw in, I'll like change sentences on the fly because I think, oh, this sounds more conversational. It sounds better spoken this way. So I'm glad that I can do that with the audiobook. 
Yeah, I'm excited to hear it. Oh, that's so cool. You know what? I want to ask you some questions about that before before we yeah. talk about your book because I'm, I'm really curious. Oh, please. So uh, was there a specific time of the day that you found was best for you to record? We would start around 10 and go till three. The mm-hmm. The max session is about six hours. Okay. And I am part of a private author group on Facebook. Everyone said how exhausting it would be. And I had no idea. It is very tiring. Mm-hmm. By the And I recorded over 10 hours total over four days. And he said it was one of the most productive authors, meaning I didn't mess up a lot. But so it may take you more than 10 hours. But um you're so exhausted by the end of the day. Don't schedule anything where you have to talk to anyone <laughs> <laughs> before or after. And it's very physically tiring, which is surprising because you have to be so incredibly focused reading words on the iPad and not messing them up. And when you do, you rewind. And another thing that I did, that's not going to be for everyone, but you're a very cheerful, positive person. I smiled while reading the book. I, I tried to get myself in a state where I felt excited and energetic Mm -hmm. because it's really easy when you're on hour five (laughs) to kind of fall into a lull. Yes. So keep that in mind too. I read somewhere that for every hour of audio that makes it into the final cut, you're going to spend two hours recording. And I believe it because I've done some test, like just some test recordings for the first couple chapters of my book. And there's so many screw ups. So what I'm doing is I'm snapping my fingers every time I screw up so that way my editor can just go through there and delete them all or listen to them and laugh at me or probably be both. But yeah, it's just I, I try to end. Um, one thing I noticed is doing it in the afternoon was a terrible idea because I get the afternoon slump and then all my energy is gone and it just makes me a complete mush mouth on the microphone. <laughs> so I think I yep. need to wake up and do it like first thing in the morning or something like that. I'm the same way when I've done podcast interviews for the pivot podcast in the afternoon, I'll listen back and I'll have swapped words that make no sense <laughs> in the moment. I didn't even realize it. And listening back, it's like, Oh, it's that afternoon brain where, or if I'm sick, if I'm getting over a cold mm-hmm. and I record anyway, I'll listen back and be like, I completely Kevin Kelly. I got the great privilege of interviewing him and I completely made this weird co- a word change. And when I introduced him and there was no way to edit it really or fix it. <laughs> so I just rolled with it. But I think most awkward. people are pretty forgiving with those kind of things. Yeah. And I think, you know, what makes audiobooks a little weird is they sound a little stilted because just reading words, it is so different than podcasting. But I agree. I mean, I feel awkward. I've been doing my podcast informally and then moved it took it pro for two mm-hmm. years now. I still feel awkward on just about every interview, but I let myself do it anyway. And I just trust that. All right, that's fine. Like no, no interview is going to be perfect, but it's to get the the connection and the gist of a great conversation. Yeah. I think everyone feels awkward in the interviews. I mean, I've been podcasting. How many podcast episodes have I done? I think I've done over 300 podcast episodes now. <gasps> Because wow. Listen Money Matters is like an extra 150 or something like that. And then all the, the guest ones I've been on. So it still is awkward. But I think once you kind of establish a connection with the person, you kind of know what they're about. It gets so much easier. What's the biggest lesson you've learned in doing 300 podcasts? 100% definitely that it just takes a ton of work to get good. I mean, I, I could probably come up with a bunch of technical lessons like, yeah, get a mixer and uh, mic presence and all that kind of stuff. But 
I think this comes out, there, there are two instances I can remember that have just drilled into my mind the value of practice. Number one is I started narrating the blog posts that go up on the site. Because I work on video now so much, I actually hire writers to just write the standalone blog posts. And then uh, one day I noticed, hey, these blog posts get like, you know, 1,000, 2,000 visits and the videos are getting so much more hits and the podcast episodes are getting so many more downloads. Why don't I just narrate these and put them up on the podcast feed? And I started doing that. My first few were pretty decent, but I'm realizing now that I can actually narrate a blog post fairly well, which is helping for the audiobook. And uh, I think the other thing, and you probably get this as well, podcasting is just a great way to meet lots of really cool people. I agree. I always say, even if I had zero listeners, it would be one of the most enriching professional activities I've ever done. Mm -hmm. It's so worthwhile and it's so much easier to connect with people you admire when you're adding value for them as well and yeah. saying, I'm going to help spread your ideas. And I love it so much. I agree. Which that brings up a good question for me. How do you personally connect with people who you really admire when you don't see a immediate way to work with them? I, well, I love following people from afar. So I don't put pressure on myself to build relationships until it makes sense. Okay. For example, I loved James Altucher's work and I met him at a party and then I ran into him somewhere and he kind of, I didn't know if he remembered me, but it's not like I read Choose Yourself and wrote to him and said, can we get coffee? But then we started running into each other in New York multiple times. And finally, we ran into each other like a fourth time in a few weeks and talked for an hour at a party. And then that developed an organic friendship. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, one thing I just take the pressure off of connecting live. I also strive to be an interesting person myself. I know that's a weird thing to say, but I don't. I'm not the one that's constantly trying to like reach upward and connect with people 10 levels above, I strive to like continue doing cool work, connect with peers and I call them friend tours and then mm -hmm. let it grow organically from there. And so that when I do reach out to a James, I'm doing interesting things. And I, I feel like if we have a conversation, it can be mutual and okay. beneficial. And I love helping people brainstorm. And he always talks about giving ideas. Uh, one thing James talks about is Asking someone, how can I help you is just giving them more work. Yes. So send them ideas instead. And people have even reached out to me, sending me typos on my website. And I'm so grateful. <laughs> That's so much easier to develop a connection than them saying like, how can I help you? Do you need a website audit? It's like, no. But if they just say you have these typos that maybe I haven't noticed for years, mm -hmm. I'm so grateful. Oh, I love that. Yeah, there's actually a page in my book where it lists a bunch of students who sent me typos because the That's first so edition cool. of my book was littered with them. That's and awesome. even I, I think they're all gone now because literally last week I went through and republished the book on Amazon with an updated file. But before that, there was even a few typos left over even after all the students helped me. And there was this dad on Twitter who tweeted me and he's like, I can't believe this. I just bought my this book for my daughter and there's typos in it. And he was like, I guess he was offended or something or flabbergasted about it. And I just said, yeah, it was a free book on my website and then people wanted it in print. So I did it myself. But hey, if she sends me typos, she'll be in the book in the credits. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. I know when we sent out the advanced copies of Pivot, 
uh, they, so when a book is getting published, there's galleys that go out six or seven months prior Mm -hmm. and they're off of a draft of the book. So the galleys went to press and, or they're called uncorrected proofs. And my dad and I did another major edit. So we caught something like 400 typos and fixes and after the galleys were printed. So then the galleys got sent out to 400 people (laughs) and they were all writing like, heads up, there's a typo on this page. Just want to be sure you caught it. And I had to keep saying like, yeah, we got it. We got it. We we changed like 400 of them, you know, after that edition. (laughs) But it's, that's kind of now people, I have a good friend, Ryan Stevens. They love the galleys because it's like a collector's edition with all the typos and everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's the first printing off the press kind of thing. Yes. You just have a giant spreadsheet full of all those typos then? No, because I mean, there's the spread making a spreadsheet would be inefficient, but they just get hand corrected and then input into the oh, Word Oh, you doc. just cross off in the, in the print actually? When it gets to that stage of it, mm-hmm. yes. So, but there's also track changes. When the editors at Portfolio were looking at the book, they would track changes in Word. Oh, that's right. I forgot you could yeah. do that. I'm yeah. such a not Word expert. <laughs> I, I have to I pay for word on a monthly basis when I need it and then I cancel mm, because yeah. I just use I, Google Docs for everything else. I do, too. I did most of the drafting in Google Docs. But mm-hmm. once it once you really have to assemble the full book and then they wanted to do track changes. So we moved it to word. But I'm a big Google Docs fan, too. And in fact, a lot of people are intimidated to write a book. But if you just think of it like 100 blog posts, it's still a lot. But you don't have to. I wouldn't be good at writing some long 30 page narrative that had mm-hmm. no breaks. I, I do tend to think in chunks that are about blog post size. So in yeah. Google Docs, I just had folders for every chapter and then individual Google Docs for every essay that went into that chapter. And oh, then that was cool. really easy to go in and edit and rearrange stuff. That's yeah. kind of like how I wrote my book. Mine was a it was a bullet list in Evernote and then sub bullet lists for every chapter basically just like blog posts essentially. And then um, the, those became Scrivener chapters and subheadings. And then every day I just say, okay, I have to write 500 words. I will write it on this subheading. And it was mm. like a blog post. That's awesome. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Evernote's a killer app too for this stuff. Yeah. So helpful for writing a book. I'm surprised that you use Google Docs to write the book though. I don't think I've heard anybody else who's used that particular app. Shane Snow is who I heard it from. Mm-hmm. He he wrote Smart Cuts by creating folders in Google Docs and individual files. So I, I have to give him full credit for yeah. that idea. Cool, cool. So going back to the email thing, I, I love how you said send people ideas. I think that, that that's a really good takeaway that I'm going to probably put into action because I, I always wrestle with this question. And I think I'm, I'm a lot like you where... I try to prioritize meeting people in person at events and stuff like that. And then maybe just waiting until there's a reason to reach out. But I still have this, I don't know, just this thing where I'll come across someone's YouTube channel and I'll be like, I need to be friends with that person. They're doing super cool stuff. You know, I still get that feeling and I'm never quite sure how to move forward with that. I only have one good example. Uh, My friend Travis Sherry, who runs a travel blog, He's the only person I can remember who just who literally emailed me in, in a very effective way to become friends, but not necessarily like work together or want something from me or anything of that sort. And it was just like, hey, you're awesome. We're doing similar, not similar work, but a similar scale. And I'm going to keep reading. And I don't know. That just really impressed me. 
Mm, that's awesome. Yeah. And on the idea thing, I think also small ideas are better than big ideas. Mm-hmm. When I get a proposal that's like, I'll work with you for six months and create X, <laughs> Y, and Z. I don't, there's no trust yet with this person. And as James has said too, it takes more work to vet someone yeah. than it does to say yes. So it's better if the idea is actually quite small and specific yeah. um, or just even giving a business model idea like, oh, I see that you have this content. I'm part of this community. She charges X. You could you could do the same thing, you know, mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah, I think that's really and then, smart. And then I think, too, just right, like getting into the fold of what someone's offerings are. Like I have my private momentum community and it's ninety seven dollars a quarter, which is not that much for how much uh, like focus I, I would put on the group and Q&A calls and everything. So if you can find low key ways to kind of get in the fold, mm-hmm. then I think that's another way of showing, hey, I'm interested and I'm present and I'm willing to participate in what you've already created and then let it grow organically from there. And I know for me, that helps me keep in touch with people more. Like I it's kind of where my favorite pivot people hang out, people who've read the book and love it and who've been with reading and in the community for years. And uh, it's the best way to keep in touch because there's also, it'd be really hard for me to keep in touch with everyone if it weren't, weren't structured in some way like that. Yeah, exactly. Which with regards to keeping in touch with people, I just interviewed a guy. Uh, I don't know if you know him. His name's Tam Pham. And he's kind of an expert at what you just said, the small kind of ideas following from afar, just very organically growing relationships. But he recently got me to start building basically a giant spreadsheet of my professional relationships, which is helping a lot with keeping in touch. Because my biggest thing is I just, I get so caught up in work, I forget to reach out to people for months at a time. Yeah, totally. I know, I know some people have super ninja systems for that and they have CMS tools like customer management where they're <laughs> setting reminders. I could never get into that, but I admire people who do. I'm actually surprised that you couldn't because you were like, you had all these spreadsheets for basically like every part of your life in uh, in Google Sheets for a while. That was kind of like your one of your it big just, things with uh, book publishing. Yeah, it just doesn't resonate to me to like systematize the hell out of friendship stuff. Mm-hmm. Like I don't want to do it. And then it feels like a burden. I already feel overwhelmed by social media. So I just feel it just takes, I'm just not interested in like systematizing that part of my life. So yeah. even if I could, yeah, you're right. I have tons of templates. I even used to have a networking template, but I mm-hmm. just does it just doesn't, it's not my thing, but for some people like John Corcoran is amazing at it. Oh yes. Um, yeah, I yeah. just met him uh, a couple of weeks ago, actually. That's awesome. Yeah, he's so cool. And he has some great content in this area. And I really admire people who do it mm-hmm. because they're so good at following up with me. But yeah, I think, I mean, part of my message too in Pivot is you got to just go with your strengths. And yeah. especially with social media, we could all become so inundated just by trying to keep up in a reactive sense. Mm-hmm. And I'm really big on truly carving time and space out for my biggest, most strategic things. And of course, building relationships would be part of that. But I tend to have a smaller circle and deeper relationships. Yeah. And one other thing is, I think you have a greater potential for connecting with people in person just because of where you live. Yes, that is true. There's like That's very true. few people where I am. I mean, you you can run into James Aldrich yeah. at a party in town, which is that is one true. big benefit of living in, in the city. Yeah. 
<laughs> Great point. And that is one of the huge reasons. And I love New York for so many reasons, but that's been a huge one. It's just the serendipity and people, even if someone doesn't live here, so many people travel through New York in a given year. Yes. And I will probably be there soon. Woo! I don't, very exciting. I don't have a set date, but there's just something about New York where it just feels like the universe pulls me there on a frequentish yeah. basis. I don't know what it is, but I know my co-host Andrew wants to, he's got this idea. He wants to set up some sort of event. So I might be doing nice. that. And then you live there. Benny Lewis lives there. And I know he wanted to do some YouTube collab stuff. So there's like reasons. And I think it's just, there's like this, this bar that is slowly being filled up to, all right, flight ticket will be bought very soon. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And it's Exciting. nice that I have a couch to sleep on whenever I want to go yes. there. Totally. That's awesome. I know I always in um, Pivot, I talked about travel pilots that mm -hmm. sometimes if we're stuck or just in the middle of planning what's next in a career or business sense, it's just as well to go shake things up by traveling, either moving completely or going to spend two weeks in a different city. And that can be such an infusion of ideas and connections that recharges you for whenever you do get back home. Have any of your moves been travel pilots? In well, New view? York, I used to come here once a quarter for with Google when mm -hmm. I worked at Google. And then and then I loved it so much. My friend Julie and I said, let's try living there for a month in April 2011 before or right after life after college came out. We loved it. We, you know, because we were we were not sure if we just had the vacation effect when we would stay for a week. Yeah. Maybe we love it because we're only here for five days, but we loved the full month. And so then Later that year, we both decided to move and we became roommates. And so that travel pilot of doing a month was very informative and kind of helped break the ice of, could we really do this? That's really cool. So were you still at Google when you did that? I just started my sabbatical. Okay. So I, I started my sabbatical in March of 2011 and we did that pilot in April. So I... It was cool because I was the first time I really had freedom every day. Yeah. And then uh, I it was in July that I gave my two weeks notice gotcha. not to go back. So mm -hmm. you did a sabbatical and then you didn't actually return to work before you yeah. ended up leaving. And I had every intention to. It wasn't like I started the sabbatical thinking, ha, 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 this is my exit plan. Mm -hmm. Not at all. I just wanted to launch my book and not and not give either project the short shrift. Like right. I knew it wouldn't be fair to Google to be launching my book full hardcore and trying to run projects. But then once I was, a, you know, two months into the sabbatical, I realized my days were completely full. I, I mm -hmm. in that moment, I was like, I don't know how I ever did this and a full-time job. <laughs> and so I, I just knew time wise, I wouldn't be able to do both anymore, even though I wasn't earning money yet with, my own business. And so when I gave two weeks notice at Google, I, I think I had one client lined up, but so, I mean, certainly not a full business worth, but I had six months of savings and I just decided, even though I don't have robust income from my side hustle, I, I don't have the bandwidth to try and do both anymore mm -hmm. without completely burning out. So you really took a risk with that then? Yeah, that <laughs> was definitely... Thankfully, I had a platform that would bring people to me. Mm -hmm. So people were paying attention. Whereas I think if somebody quit with zero income and zero platform, that would be different. Um, yeah. But yeah, it was a big risk. It was bigger than I probably advocate in Pivot. <laughs> yeah, definitely true. To others. Yeah. Would you say there was a certain confidence there, maybe your career skills or your or your history that you maybe thought, you know, you could get something else if that didn't work out? Kind of, but I would say 
um, less confidence than, than you would think. I really didn't know if I was cut out for entrepreneurship. And I, eventually I said, I'm willing to spend every penny of my savings for six months. And if I do have to go get another job, yes, I trust that I could find one. And I'd be willing to do that. And at least I would know that I had tried. So I wasn't confident like, oh, I can crush it as an entrepreneur. But yeah, I was kind of like, I'm willing to go with plan B if and when that's required. Yeah. And that willingness is what gave me the kind of permission to go to go ahead. So you were just basically willing to bury that loss aversion and and the fear that comes with it because you just really yeah. wanted it. And as soon as I did leave... Having all day, every day to troubleshoot one goal, how to pay the rent, mm -hmm. was really freeing. And that's when I realized, oh my gosh, I have so much creative capacity that I wasn't fully using at Google. And now when I harness it all toward earning a living, it's totally doable. Now, I've gone through ups and downs since then. So mm -hmm. it's not like, you know, as we, as for me, as I shifted creative direction or creative projects, pivoted the content of what I wanted to talk about, my income did often lag behind. Right. Um, but I, I did grow, my confidence really grew in my resourcefulness to mm -hmm. be able to figure things out no matter what. Yeah. So I think people are going to be really interested in how you made the one month experimental move to New York. Cause I think that's something that maybe a student at a college may not see as possible right now, but I can tell you that I've had that that thought every once in a while, like, what if I just went and lived in Sweden for a month or something? So how did you make it happen, actually? Totally. And I've done this. I lived in Bali and Thailand for a month, and then mm -hmm. I went back to Bali for a month. The scariest thing is buying the plane ticket. Okay. That is the, so if someone can, and I have a, a worksheet, if you go to pivotmethod.com slash toolkit, and go to the pilot section, there's a worksheet for travel pilots. So it will actually help somebody think through where they would want to go, what their budget is, how long you'd want to stay for, what your internal fears are and any process based concerns that you can work out. And the biggest thing is, yeah, just booking the flight, the rest of the details will fall into place. And mm -hmm. now we're so lucky. There are things like nomad list, which give cost of living ideas and how easy it is to work oh, yeah. from the location. And, and then we have um, so many places now are opening up co-working spots and there's just so much technology that makes it really Airbnb. I mean, oh my goodness, that was not even as big of a thing when I did my first travel pilot to Bali and Thailand in 2012. Yeah. And now I want to go to Argentina perhaps this January. We'll see. But it's just going to check Airbnb, like see what's available. And mm -hmm. it's just so much more doable than people think. And of course, if you have a full-time job, it's a little different. In some cases, you could ask to work from a remote office for a period of time. And then I encourage you to just do something that's in your stretch zone. Um, but it may not be a month right away. Maybe your travel pilot or someone else's would be a week or yeah. two weeks. But stretch outside of what feels comfortable. And that's what makes it a pilot and not just a vacation. I found that even even a week for me can be enough to really get me rejuvenated and excited about my work. Yeah. And awesome. we did Airbnb in Denver and oh man, it's I don't know if I'll ever stay in like a hostel again when I travel. Because oh, there's just yeah. something about and over that. <laughs> <laughs> did you do it when you were younger? 
I'm in college, but mm -hmm. my sleep is so of paramount importance to me now mm -hmm. more than ever. And I just don't want to deal with rustling noises or people snoring or any of that. Like, yes. no, thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. San Diego was my, was my nail in the coffin. Cause I, I was like, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to just take a vacation. I'm going to stay in a hostel. And the hostel was great, except for the fact that there was a snoring guy above me for three nights. And I was like, you know what? I, I don't actually need to stay in a hostel. Like I could probably afford a hotel if I wanted to. I'm just cheap. But like you, I value my sleep. So just the other thing about Airbnbs is you, you feel like you're living in the city a little bit. Like you kind of feel like yeah. a local. Yeah, I, I go both ways on Airbnb. Sometimes I don't want to be in someone else's face and deal with the hassle of the keys and this and that. Mm -hmm. But it depends what the situation is. Like it depends what my budget is. If I'm if I'm being paid to speak, I'll, I love hotels actually. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it just there's so many factors. But yeah, I think I mean I did Airbnb for South by Southwest, and the place wasn't perfect, mm -hmm. but it worked. And sometimes that's really all you need. And with South by Southwest, I mean, unless you're booking really early, it becomes one of your only options, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Because that, that place just goes crazy. I haven't been to South by Southwest since 2012, but even then it was insane. Like getting a taxi yeah. ride anywhere was, and you're going to be in an hour for a mile down the road. <laughs> I know. Well, the, this last year there was Uber and Lyft, but I think they might have gotten banned. They did. The yeah. Oh. I know so a lot tragic. of people in Austin who are very, um, yeah. well, okay, they're, they're mad about it, but what I heard is that a bunch of new services have come in to basically replace Uber and Lyft, because the only reason Uber and Lyft are not there is because they refuse to comply with Austin's mm. uh, law that requires drivers to be fingerprinted. Oh, so there's just a bunch of new ones that are like, sure, we'll fingerprint our drivers and we'll do the exact same thing for you. So, I mean, it, people in Austin are not completely up a creek, but they just have to get a second app, which isn't Very too bad. And I mean, if you live yeah. in Austin, then you just, that becomes your main app, I guess. Yeah. So I wanted, there was like one big question I wanted to ask you with regards to Pivot. Because I mean, you wrote this entire book about small changes and, you know, looking forward to just your next move. So I got asked this question in an interview recently, uh, and I want to know what your answer to it is. What do you say when people ask you, where do you see yourself in five years? Well, yeah, because I don't, I think that question's <laughs> irrelevant. Mm -hmm. So one, I, I mean, I just don't advocate anyone asking that, but mm -hmm. um, I, I, I just go with what I do know. So in five years, I want to continue speaking and writing. And my mission in life is to be as helpful as possible to as many people as possible. So that keeps it broad enough for me that I know, I actually feel great that I know I, I love, especially it became super clear after working on Pivot. I love chewing on big, original, as original as possible ideas and frameworks that really help create order out of chaos. That's that's something I love. So mm -hmm. however I can keep doing that is cool. And then when I think, you know, part of what sparked me writing Pivot was intimidation when people would say, so what's next after my first book came out? Mm -hmm. And so if someone has asked the five-year question, I think a perfectly reasonable response is, well, right now I'm really excited about <laughs> my podcast. And you just pivot the conversation away from having to know, because none of us can predict five years out, really the specifics of what we're going to be doing. Yeah, that's smart. I always, I always just hem and haw and I say something like, I have no idea. Because 
five years ago, I was an IT intern. So if you would have asked that kid, hey, what are you going to do in five years? He wouldn't have said YouTuber. So I don't know. I could be a plumber in five years or in space. Hey, that's a good idea. That's, I'm going to just tell people in space. I think that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. I love it. Mission to Mars. Here we come. There we go. Yeah, I'm going to be working for Elon Musk. It's totally realistic, right? Perfect. Yes. <laughs> Anything is possible. So I don't think we talked a ton about your book in this interview, but I'm okay with that because I think this was just fun. As am I. Hopefully there's some little nuggets in here that are valuable, even if not everyone's recording an audio book or writing an actual book. But to just know that so much of all these projects are, as we would say at Google, launch and iterate. You mm -hmm. just get something going and make small adjustments over time. So yeah, I hope, I hope this was helpful for everybody listening. Yeah. And I definitely think that people should go listen to our first conversation because even though that was two years ago, I think a lot of the seeds that ended up becoming your book were in that conversation, or at least you were thinking about similar things at the time. That's cool. I'll have to go back and listen. Mm -hmm. a nice time capsule. I know a lot of it was about pivoting. So when oh, I, really? I was going to the, the wow. episode, I was like, okay, I want to tell people about Jenny's book because it's awesome. But we already talked a lot about pivoting in our oh. first conversation because, oh. I mean, you've been working on, I think you were in the early stages of the book when we talked yeah. the first time. Wow, that's so interesting. Yeah, it's been three years that I've been working on it. So that's, yeah, I and it's been even a, a little over two years, maybe two and a half since uh, we recorded that first podcast episode. So that was really cool. And uh, I'll definitely be linking your book up in the show notes as well so people can check it out. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thanks again for having me on and to everybody who's here listening. Yeah, for sure. All right, guys. Well, that about does it for this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it and hopefully you found something useful within it. And once again, you can pick up Jenny's book. It's called Pivot. I'll have it linked up in the show notes, which again, you can find over at CIGpodcast.com slash 131. And uh, there you'll also find lots of other useful links. You can also find my favorite resources for making your college life and your life in general more productive and uh, more well-organized, all that kind of stuff, apps, tools, books, resources, over at collegeinfogeek.com slash resources, and that's where you'll find my big toolbox that we've built up and that we keep adding to all the time. So once again, thanks for listening, and I will see you in next week's episode. Until then, stay cute. Thank you.